Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, brought to you by the spectacular Yamaha R7. It's a new generation of super sport machine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Associate Editor Will Embry recently went to the world launch in Italy of the Gas Gas range of motocross and enduro off-road machines. The model variation is very extensive, and American buyers have a choice between several four-strokes as well as two-strokes to choose from. Will explains the differences between all of them, and for those of you undecided where Gas Gas fits into the market with its sibling brands, and which Gas Gas model might interest you, he will help you make up your mind. This week's snippet is brought to you from the Saddleman Racing Pit at Brainerd International Raceway in Minnesota. TJ Adams caught up with lady racer Patricia Fernandez, who tells us a little bit about the Saddleman Racing Program in the Moto America King of the Baggers series, and why she thinks that Saddleman products are of real-world benefit to her. In our second feature segment, Neil Bailey once again catches up with world traveller Alan Carl, who continues to talk about his journey around the globe on his BMW F650 GS Dakar. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. So where we were was uh, about two hours south of Florence. We, we landed in Florence. Um, Gas Gas coordinated a, a large bus to take all the journalists from the airport uh, to the hotel. And um, I'm going to try my best to pronounce the name of the city. It was a small countryside city, uh, Chita di, di Castilla, I believe. City Very of nice. Castilla, or City of Castello. Okay. Sorry if I'm butchering it. But uh, it was a really beautiful town, uh, countryside, you know, rolling hills. Uh, it was amazing. And um, the, the facility they brought us to was like a moto club or a country club, if you will, for motocross. And it was beautiful. Um, tucked away in the hills with uh, beautiful countryside views. And uh, it was a massive event. So what Gas Gas did is they brought out their, their entire off-road line. They had a total of 16 models, ranging from enduro, cross-country, and motocross. And so I, I believe there were there were 60-plus journalists from all over the world that, that came out for this event. And this event was their global debut, uh, debut of the 2024 off-road line. And um, so they brought out all 16 models. And they divided us into two groups. You know, the first group did motocross in the morning. Second group did enduro uh, in the morning. And then we switched in the, in the afternoon. I didn't ride all 16 models. Um, you know, because there's actually, a, there's some enduro models that they don't offer in, in North America. I, I got to be honest, I'm not really an enduro rider. 
you know, I don't do a whole, I do more. So I'm more focused on motocross um, and desert riding, which would be considered, you know, cross country. Um, you know, so uh, I, I did have some fun on the enduro course, although I wasn't so trained for that kind of thing. Um, but it, it was incredible. I rode the EX250. Uh, it's a 250 two-stroke model. And it's it's geared differently, um, you know, than the like the MC250, for example, for motocross. It's really smooth, really, really smooth on the throttle. You know, I think the suspension is a little bit softer. You know, it was a very, uh, very easy bike to ride for a two-stroke. Um, and, I, you know, I think they do that on purpose to keep, uh, you know, for, for the enduro style of riding. It's pretty technical. You know, they had us go through, um, we were going through the forest on really tight single track trails with some technical sections like climbing and descending down like rock gardens, um, really tight sandy corners. It was a pretty cool track. It was a lot of fun. Um, so I, so yeah, so I rode a couple of the enduro models. Um, but then when it came time for the motocross part of our day, that's when I really had a ton of fun. So, um, yeah, so on the motocross side of things, and also, by the way, too, the 2024 year models mark the first, second generation of gas, gas motocross bike or gas, gas off-road bikes. So pretty much this year for 2024, the bikes are all new as compared to 2023. Um, so, so that was really exciting. I spent a lot of time on the 23 mod on the 2023 uh, MC250F uh, last year. I raced it at day in the dirt here in Southern California. It's a Grand Prix uh, style race. Um, we did our review on that. And um, of all the bikes that I tested last year, the, that MC250F was uh, one of my favorites. It's a very comfortable bike to ride. Can you differentiate the gas gas uh, you know, motorcycles from the Husqvarna and the KTM? Are, are they, is there anything similar in those ranges or is there a big differentiation? Yeah, that is a very common question among most people. Um, and so Gas Gas did a really good job at differ differentiating themselves from Husqvarna and KTM. So the Gas Gas models, um, they, they do share a lot of the same, pretty much the same motor on, on their models. The difference is going to be uh, in the, the chassis and the suspension. So the gas gas suspension is quite a bit softer, a bit more plush as compared to a KTM, for example. So gas gas, the brand's mantra is, um, you know, about being the fun brand, the fun bike to ride. Right. And KTM is race ready. Um, so the KTM suspension setup is going to be quite a bit more stiff for high speed and the gas gas is going to be a bit more plush for, you know, um, just for, I don't want to say slower, you know, but it's just a bit more plush, more comfortable. In my opinion, you know, I, I'm not a pro racer, you know, um, I'm not going as fast as a lot of these pro guys are. And the suspension worked really well for me. The chassis was, um, really, you know, they're, they're all, um, steel chassis. Um, so they have quite a bit of flex in there. The triple clamps are also uh, updated for this year to provide a bit more flex um, on the gas gas. And uh, I did I did feel it. 
you know, it, it really is. Um, I, I keep using the word plush because it's very, it's a very smooth, comfortable bike to ride. Um, as compared to the Husky and the KTM, which are a bit more geared toward racing. Um, they also come, you know, the gas gas comes kind of, I don't want to kind of stripped down. They don't have the map selection switch that comes standard on the bikes. So the bike is stuck in the standard map setting. However, you can access the maps by buying the map switch separately. Um, and then, and then the ECU is pretty much is already programmed, you know, with the different map settings, um, to access, you just have to kind of buy the upgrade. So it sounds as though the, the gas gas chassis is, is like, as you say, it's more plush, but it also sounds like it's, uh, it's more forgiving. Absolutely. That that's, you, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what gas gas is doing. Um, it is definitely more for, you know, the, you know, you could certainly race the bikes. It's a competitive bike. Like I said, the motors are all very similar. You know, you just can't access the map settings, but the motors we, so they had presentations for us. They had the actual engineers that worked on, on the, on the motors and the suspension and the chassis that were there presenting to us, all of the details about the updates as compared to the previous models. Um, and we asked the one of the motor uh, engineers, you know, what's the difference between this and the, and the KTM? And he basically just said nothing, you know, as far as as far as the motor is concerned, you know. Um, so they do share, you know, they do sh share the motor package, um, but there is quite a bit of difference in, in in a lot of the components and settings. And and yeah, and yeah, really. So as Gas Gas likes to brand themselves as the fun as the fun bike, it really is forgiving. It is a really nice forgiving bike. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, we, this past year we were testing multiple bikes. We had the 2023 gas, uh, MC 250 F the 2023 CRF 250R, the Honda and the, uh, the Suzuki, uh, RMZ 250. And when I compare both the, you know, the gas gas to those other Japanese bikes, man, the gas gas, is it handles like a dream. It really is very, I don't want to say, you know, it's easier to ride. So uh, like a, a track like Glen Helen, for example, Glen Helen, world-renowned Glen Helen can get very rough. You know, it's a very rough track, especially towards the end of the day, a lot of braking bumps, acceleration bumps. You have a lot of like fast downhills and inclines. Um, it can get pretty rutted as well. So it's a very rough course and i've ridden the honda on that course and i gotta tell you it was a struggle for me um i i ride a bit more timid on the honda because the front end of that bike um is just very different it's very rigid the suspension setup is a lot more stiff um to me i feel like it didn't have as much front end traction the gas gas however felt like a very nicely balanced bike where it tracked really well through the rough stuff. It tracked really well around corners. The front end traction was amazing. And the suspension really soaked up all those bumps. Um, and for me, that I really appreciated that because it gives me more confidence. And I think overall, I'm able to ride faster because I'm not trying to fight the bike too much. You know, So I think that was the biggest difference for me is that the gas gas is, is really a, a comfortable bike and a forgiving bike, you know, especially on rough tracks or, or, you know, rough, rough conditions.
I can totally relate to that. In in off-road terms, do, do, do off-road bikes have any kind of suspension adjustments? Is there any any adjustment here or is it, you know, you get what you get? No, absolutely. There, 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 there's, there's a ton of adjustments you can make on, on these motorcycles. Everything from setting the sag, you know, it's going to depend on the weight of the weight of the rider. Um, you can, you know, there's a ton of settings you can do with the, you know, the forks are, you know, air forks. So you can adjust the air pressure in the forks, depending on elevation, um, depending on your feel, the, what your style, the way you like it. Um, another great feature too, that, you know, all the Europe or the European models offer on the suspension on the, uh, the, the forks, they have the thumb clickers. So you can adjust the clickers right there track side without having to go back to the truck and getting the tool to adjust the clickers, you know, so you can adjust the compression. Wow. Yeah. So I, you know, that's just a nice, a nice feature to have. You're never um, tempted to do that on the fly, are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I'm in the air, I like to adjust it. Oh, it's a little too soft. <laughs> a couple of clicks there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, that is a nice feature. Yeah. And, you know, you could raise the forks, you can lower the forks too, depending on the handling that, that you're, that you're going for. Um, during, during our test in Italy, I didn't make any, many adjustments. I just kept everything in, in its stock factory form just to really feel the bike. And, uh, I mean, to be honest, there wasn't really much I needed to adjust. It was the cross country 250 I rode. The front end felt a little loose to me. Okay. Um, and I consulted with one of the, one of the mechanics there about that. I didn't make adjustments to it, but I, I asked him about it. And he said, basically, you know, they can tighten up the front end, tighten up the triple clamp, you know, just to make it a bit more, uh, you know, not so loose for steering, you know, so there's a bunch of different things you could do for setup, you know? Um, yeah. And, and as far as suspension goes, I mean, it's, it's, it's endless is, is how much you can do. And, and, and the thing is too, is even the tiniest little adjustments can make a huge difference. I'm talking like, you know, if you were to raise or lower the forks by a millimeter or two, uh, you feel a huge difference. And even in clickers also, if you wanted to adjust the compression or the rebound, um, you know, in, in, in very bumpy, like very small, bumpy, choppy situations, you would want to kind of speed up that rebound so you keep that wheel on the ground. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I do those adjustments all the time when we do long-term reviews of these bikes. I'm always making adjustments depending on the track conditions. And it just, like I said, tiny little changes can make a big difference. Right. Is this something that even maybe an intermediate kind of rider would be comfortable with? Or is this really an expert-only machine? I would definitely say it, this would be more of a beginner to intermediate rider type of machine. If you are a... You know, if you're going to Loretta's and you're going to be racing uh, top level, you know, amateur level, you're not, you're probably not going to want to buy the gas gas because you're going to have to spend a ton of money to get it race ready as compared to the KTM. The KTM, like I said, is it has uh, a bit different of a um, suspension setup. I don't, I don't know specifically the differences, but, but what we were told by uh, the engineers is that it's it's really it's a lot more stiff a lot more stiff it has upgraded components you know like brakes it's got brembo brakes it's got uh, different wheels and hubs um you know there are chassis differences you know um suspension is completely different so you know <clears throat> if you were going to go out and, and and try to be a competitive racer gas gas may not be your number one choice if you're a rider who you know 
you go and you ride week, you know, on the weekends with your buddies, you know, maybe you, you, you race sometimes you go out and, you know, you throw down some laps a few times at your local series. Um, you know, or if you go off road, ride some trails with your friends, gas, gas, I think would be your, your, your choice. Not only are you going to save, save money, you know, uh, the, the sticker price is a lot, a lot less than a KTM or a Husky. Um, you know, but it's, um, I mean, it's ready to go. The bike is ready to go in its stock form. Right. You know, and if you really wanted to upgrade the bike, you could, you know, and you could probably still be under the price of a KTM. It's interesting. And like you say, for the sort of occasional race guy or the guy that just likes to go fast, just that feeling that they've got that forgiving handling and, and they've got the confidence, they will probably actually lap a little faster than if they had, like you say, a, a, a stiffer, harder to ride bike where they're constantly managing the bike rather than focusing on the track. Absolutely. And I, I can totally relate to that in street terms as well. Yeah, there's a, there, you know, there's a saying it's, uh, you know, you kind of slow down to go faster. You know, you, you, you know, especially in motocross, you don't you definitely don't want to be fighting the bike. You know, um, you don't want to ride timidly. You, you don't want to be, you know, concerned that you're not going to you, you, you want to have confidence. You want to have confidence coming into any section or, you know, coming over any terrain, you know, so. Yeah, the gas gas really is a confidence builder, in my opinion. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. So aimed at aimed at like the competent rider who who really is just getting involved in off road or or the young guy who's just really sort of starting out. And absolutely. You know, and, and the MC250F is a great bike. I rode I rode all the motocross models ranging from the 125 two stroke and the 252 stroke. And then as far as the four stroke models, I rode the 250, 350 and 450. Um, the 250. You know, if if you're, um, you know, you're coming in, you know, if you're more of a 250 type of rider. 250 four-stroke or, or two-stroke? Four-stroke, yes. Thank you. Yeah. The four-stroke has a very, and this is very characteristic of the Gas Gas uh, brand, the, the power delivery is extremely linear, meaning like throughout the entire RPM range, you're not going to have a super punchy bottom end and then fall out fall out you know on the high end of the rpm range it's very linear very smooth so when you're on the gas uh it's it's extremely predictable so you right. so, so you always know kind of what to expect when you're accelerating and it's not gonna just rip your arms off you know or it's not gonna bite at some point and then you're gonna lose control it's very smooth the 250 was extremely smooth for me for me personally, I kind of, I, I would, I almost want a little bit more bottom end on the 250 four stroke, um, you know, but, but it, it definitely gets up and goes, you know, when you want it to. Um, but I was thinking the whole time I'm riding this thing is that, wow, you know, like the gas really, or the throttle response and, and the power delivery of the motor is just really predictable. Uh, you know, and, and, and I feel, I think like that is a great characteristic to have in a motorcycle, especially when you're riding rough tracks. And, and, it, and if you were to race too, you know, that just gives you confidence in that, you know, what to expect the 350, however, was just a little bit bigger than the 250. Right. And it, it, it has that bottom end punch that, that I like, you know, it, it kind of gets up and goes, you can lug around the corner and third gear and not feel like you're losing power. Um, and it'll get up and go, you know, it's just one step up above the 250. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, too, 
on the four stroke models, the 250, 350, and 450 all share the exact same frame. You know, so you're kind of, and, and you're kind of getting the same size bike. The difference is going to be in the, in the engine, of course. Right. Um, but yeah, that 350, I got to tell you, the 350 was probably my favorite of the entire line. It's just a really good mix of a 250 and 450, you know, because it's still a, a relatively lighter bike. Um, you know, the power of is just a bit more power than the 250. It had that low end punch. It also did have, I noticed that it wasn't quite as linear as it, as the 250 was in that mid range, like coming down the fast straights, it really started to kind of pick up and take off, Okay, you know, which, which was fun. Um, however, it could be a little bit less predictable. I noticed that. So on this particular track, they watered it a lot and <laughs> yeah. Um, they watered almost too much. And a, and a lot of the other guys there, there were, there were some pro level, uh, you know, testers there and they were even saying it was overwatered and, you know, they, uh, they have this, they have a sprinkler system that kind of, it, it seems it would, would be efficient. They had this sprinkler system around the entire track. They just turn the sprinklers on and waters the track. But, uh, anyways, the dirt, the dirt characteristics were very hard packed underneath with a soft soft like loose sand on top right wow. so all that water or all that loose sand soaked up the water made a nice like little mud you know on top of the hard pack you know so you're kind of just slipping and sliding all over the place uh but there were a few sections as i was riding the 350 uh where i'm slipping and you know i'm going up a hill and i got a lot of wheel spin you know just tracking through all this mud and when i hit a nice dry spot and my i you know, hooked up, the tires hooked up and got some traction, that bike really took off, you know, because it has nice, some nice torque. But it was controllable. You know, it was controllable. It wasn't going to, like, surprise you and and just, like I said, rip your arms off. But the 450, however, that thing had some power. That 450 barked. It was powerful. And I've written other 450s that, were, I think, in my opinion, were just a bit more smoother um but yeah that 450 is fast it was super fast but i do know for sure it is a heavier bike of course typically you're going to be going faster maybe a larger rider so it does have different suspension setups there the 450 is is just a beast <laughs> I, I i did have fun on it but it uh it was fast right right yeah that's a, a great range of bikes like you say you've got a sort of beginner to intermediate on the 250 if they, mm -hmm. if they feel like they've got the confidence, they could certainly go for the 350. And then ultimately, if they're, you know, again, if they're still not into the really hardcore competitive racing, you can move up to the 450 and you've got all the power and the performance, but you've still got a usable bike. Absolutely. Yeah. And the 450, even as, as fast and powerful as it is, it still did seem overall like a nice, smooth, plush bike. The suspension settings are, you know, definitely more plush than the KTM for sure. Right. You know. If, if you're a larger rider, you know, or older, larger rider, you kind of, you know, it's, I would say, um, you don't have to work as hard to go fast in the 450. You can lug around on in like second gear, you know, and that second gear will still pull you all the way through a straight and over a jump, you know, so you're not shifting as much on a 450. You're not working the clutch as much. Okay. Um, just a, you know, a little bit of twist of that throttle and you got plenty of power. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So you were you were going to tell me a little about a little bit about the two strokes. Uh, yes, the, 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 I'll tell you what I had frenzy. 
Yeah, yeah, the two-stroke. And, and honestly, I got to tell you, it's been a long time since I rode a two-stroke. You know, I've been on four-strokes for for quite a bit of time. I think last time I even owned a two-stroke was like 2010 or something like that. When I was in college, I was riding a uh, KX250 two-stroke. Had a lot of fun on that thing too. That thing, that thing could get away from you. You know, all, all the modern two-strokes nowadays, uh, especially the European models, the Gas Gas, Husky, and, and KTM are just really, really, really smooth. And now the Gas Gas, the 2024 model as compared to last year's model is now fuel injected. Uh, it's a fuel injected electric start two stroke. Okay. So, I mean, it's like a, it's, it's a dream. It really is. I had, I rode the, I was riding the 125, the 125 two stroke on the motocross track. And I had so much fun with that thing. <laughs> uh, I was even sitting there. I'm thinking like, man, if I'm going to buy a bike, I'm going to buy this bike because <laughs> it really is a lot of fun. You know, I mean, uh, being, a you know, fuel injected and electric start, that's just, that's luxury, right? Um, but with the fuel injection, it was very, very smooth. It didn't really have that power band that came out of nowhere. You know, the, the motor still liked to be in that mid to top end range for the power. You know, the, the, the 125 is being a smaller motor. It doesn't like to be lugged around in the low RPM. So you really got to keep the RPMs up, which for me is, is a lot of fun. I like to be more of aggressive when I'm riding, which is why I like the 254 stroke also. You know, you're pretty much just pinned on the gas everywhere you go to stay really in the meat of the power. Um, but what's really cool about the two-stroke models now with Gas Gas is it's dual injection, meaning you have a second reservoir for the oil and then, you, of course, the gas tank. So you have two, two injectors that are, that are squirting in all the gas and oil together into the motor so you don't have to pre-mix the gas anymore. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's really great. There's a, I got a picture of it. Um, there's a, it's like a long, you know, it, it, it pretty much goes up under the front of the frame, underneath the tank, underneath the gas tank is where the oil tank is. And you could, you could uh, fill up the oil tank with a little, you know, cap, you know, in the front of the bike yeah. and you fill it up and uh, the, and, you know, and, and it just injects the, the oil and fuel together without pre-mixing all the gas. Okay. Um, and also the 125 does come standard with a map switch that controls, um, it controls the, the mixture. So you can go leaner or richer on the, on the oil and fuel mixture. The richer map is going to be for something if you're doing, you know, like higher speed, you know, like cross country types st type of stuff, okay. you know, or it depends on the temperature or or the elevation that you're riding at. I believe I kept it in the in the leaner, um, the leaner map all day. Right, um, it's going to be a bit you know, faster, and yeah, it will be a bit faster. You know, the temperature was great there. The elevation wasn't very high. I don't. It was, I think, probably less than two thousand feet above sea level is where we were at. Yeah. You know, so, so that that lean mixture worked out perfectly for me. Um, I would definitely like to try it. I kind of put a bug in their ear. I told uh, uh, we had a we had a couple of reps that came out and like took care of all the the U.S. journalists that traveled out there together. So I put a bug in his ear. And I was like, hey, man, I would love to do a long term review on this 125. Just saying he's like, OK, I'll I'll, uh, I'll put your name on one of them when they come in. So. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see if we get a 125, but that, that'd be a lot of fun. That would be great. And so then they presumably offer a, like a 250 version or a 200 version yeah. of the two-stroke? Yes, yes. They had a two-stroke version to the, the, the 250 two-stroke. Uh, that was an incredible machine also. And then just um, the same as the 125, just twice as fast. 
Exactly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was incredible. Both. I mean, like, like I said, I haven't rode a two stroke in a long time and it was, uh, it was fun to get back on them. Right. Right. Yeah. It was the 250. Was it too much or was that, that sounds like a real expert bike. If you're having, yeah, it, 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 it um, two fifties can bite yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. They, they certainly can. Um, it, it really wasn't, uh, I don't think it was too much to handle as compared to like the 450, in my opinion, I think was a, it wasn't, you know, it was a bit to handle, you know, the power was, 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 it was pretty, it was, it's pretty powerful. The 250 was a bit more, uh, you know, controllable. It still definitely had, still definitely had some bark, bark in it, you know, but uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun to ride. And again, it was smooth on the throttle. Right. It definitely had the power when you wanted it and, and, but it was still smooth and controllable. Right. So, yeah. for, so for the guy that's really undecided between the two stroke or the four stroke, it's, you know, to who's maybe considering say the three fifty four stroke or the one twenty five two stroke. They sound like they're pretty close um in some ways how would you tell them to try and differentiate between those well well i, I would say so it would in terms of classes go i would say that the 254 stroke and 125 are similar you could race them both in the same class okay. um the right the riding style of 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 a two-stroke or four-stroke are completely different you know you're going to have a bit more bottom end torque on the 250 you're not going to have to clutch through corners or clutch through technical sec sections with it with a 254 stroke as compared to the 125 the 125 you have to really ride aggressively you have to you know you have to be really focused on what you're doing because if you come up to a section and you're either in the wrong gear you're you know you're too high of a gear um you know you the thing it will bog it will bog down and you'll lose power you'll have to clutch through pretty you know a lot i was clutching a lot with with the 125 which really makes it fun sure. you know sure. hey, i love clutching you know and it was a hydraulic clutch by the way and it was very simple i, I had one finger on the clutch all day long on, on all the bikes and it was a very buttery smooth type of clutch um you know so it, it depends on it's hard to say you know how to consult somebody on picking a 125 versus a 250 i would really just kind of talk to them about you know how to ride those 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 bikes you know the 250 i would think would be a little bit easier because you do have a you have more torque on the bottom end you don't have to shift gears as much you don't have to clutch as much you know the 250 or i'm sorry the the 125 you have to shift a lot and you really have to be on that gas especially if the track or wherever you're riding has a lot of inclines, you know, um, you have, before you're, before you're up that hill, you have to really be in the right gear and you got to be in the right RPM range right. to get the power. Sure. So even if it's not really faster than the 250, it's just more aggressive, really. You've got to ride it yeah. more aggressively. And, and so really mm -hmm. for, like you say, for, it really depends on if somebody's actually going to do a little bit of light racing. Um, you know, if it's purely recreational, it sounds like the 254 stroke is probably the one because they're mm -hmm. just out there having fun with their buddies, you know, burning through the desert or riding single tracks or whatever, you know. Sure. Uh, whereas if if they're actually going to do a bit of racing, not seriously, but just at a sort of amateur fun level, then it sounds like the two stroke is definitely a contender. 
Yeah, yeah, and you know, for sure. And, and it kind of depends on the age of the rider too and what and what class they're riding in. You know, if you're uh if you're a vet, if you're a vet rider, you know, 25 plus, 30 plus vet rider, um, you know, uh you probably would prefer the 250F. Um, you know, it, it, if you're racing, you know, racing in the 250 class, the 125, you know, they have, if you're a kid, you know, I know a lot of young kids here locally in Southern California and, um, you know, they go from the 85s to the 125s, you know, and they're a lighter, lighter rider. They're younger. Of course, they're more confident, more aggressive. You know, they do really well in a 125. Uh, an older, heavier guy uh, would probably prefer a 250, you know, um, depends on your budget too. The 125 would be less than the 250 as far as sticker price goes. Um, a little bit less to maintain, uh, easier to fix, you know, if you wanted to. Right. They're competitive in that they would race the same class, but the way that you ride them is completely different. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Will. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your insight and your time. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. This week's snippet is brought to you from the Saddleman Racing Pit at Brainerd International Raceway in Minnesota. TJ Adams caught up with lady racer Patricia Fernandez, who tells us a little bit about the Saddleman Racing Program in the Moto America King of the Baggers series, and why she thinks that Saddleman products are of real-world benefit to her. racing these baggers these days trying to yeah these big old baggers 620 pound bikes with a ton of power a ton of torque but women are smart we can do anything yeah sure <laughs> and one of the key um aspects that's giving you the comfort is the saddlemen saddles i heard you talking about them. yeah so i race for saddlemen saddlemen is a seat company which is um, amazing that a seat company is keeping up with production and development on top of factory teams but Salmon Race and Development, we are uh, on Harleys this year, so we switched manufacturers, so it's a big learning year for us still. A lot of these teams have been on the same bike for two, three years where we're starting all over again, so all the data from the other manufacturer doesn't apply to a Harley-Davidson. The bikes are amazing, they're powerful, they handle really well, but it's just more about learning setup and from each track to the next. Like We just went out for practice and our gearing was way off, but we had no data of what to start with, so we were just guessing, you know? But um, it's cool to see the improvements that we make, even from one session to the next, and the development that comes through with all these guys. And we have so many amazing motorcycle builders at Saddleman that come from, you know, rallies and Sturgis and all this other stuff. But to see these really talented fabricators and welders and bike builders and engine builders to come to the racing side, so they're learning too, and we're learning with them, and it's really fun to develop that together as a team. It's amazing how technical a seat can be and what a difference it can make. Yeah, and especially at Saddleman, so we have the largest backer team, we have four riders. I am the shortest rider on the grid, and we also have the tallest rider on the grid, Jake Lewis. Oh, really? Yeah, he's over a foot taller than me, that lucky guy, but uh, you know, the baggers, we keep raising the height of them because we're fighting ground clearance, because we scrape stuff on them. These bikes weren't really intended to do yeah, what we're doing I've with them. That. So Saddleman, thank goodness, is a seat manufacturer and uh, it comes down to one basic ergonomics of like a rider's height, but also rider preference. You know, riders are, we're picky and we like different stuff and it's yes, all going to be just yes. right. So if you go down and look at all the four different Saddleman bikes, each seat's different, each tank pad's different, you know, and they develop that just based on their rider preference. So I liked the taller seat heights when I was riding. It was more aggressive, put me on the tank more. But then I couldn't get the bike stopped because my legs are so far from the ground, I couldn't stop it. 
So I have the lowest seat height possible and it's not the most ideal racing position. However, if I don't have it that low, I won't be able to stop it on the grid to start it. So a little bit of compromise. Yeah. And you can have these settlement fitted onto any motorcycles, basically. Yeah, it's insane to see. It's really cool. We just came back from the Harley 120th, but like three out of our five Harleys has like a saddleman seat on it. And don't get me wrong, if I were putting in a lot of miles and long street rides, I absolutely want my butt to be cushy, you know, with the gel and everything else. But you see a lot of these hardcore riders out there that put in tons of miles on their bikes. And one of the first things they change is the seat. You know, obviously you want it to be comfortable and enjoy your ride. So I'm glad that we can transfer that over to racing because, you know, they see the rider that's the most comfortable goes the fastest. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? Go well today. That's excellent. Thank Thanks you. very much. You're welcome. In our second feature segment, Neil Bailey once again catches up with world traveller Alan Carl, who continues to talk about his journey around the globe on his BMW F650 GS Dakar. Okay, welcome back to Motors and Friends, world rider Alan Carl. Um, in our first podcast with you, um, where we followed your epic journey around the world, which went on to provide all the information that you put into your book, Forks. Um, we left you creating your bike in Istanbul with it shipped and heading to Baltimore. It was 2009. The world was beginning to change. Pick up the story for us, Alan, as you went to retrieve your bike in Baltimore after three years away from home. Well, you can imagine at this time that we had just um, gone into the financial crisis in the USA. We had just elected our first African-American president and had our first crisis in a long time. I mean, we were we were swinging for at least, uh, you know, a dozen or more years in terms of the economy. And I, during that whole time, was traveling across five continents through 35 countries. And uh, prior to creating that bike and shipping it over to Baltimore from actually outside of Istanbul, a place called Drinz. It's a big shipping port there uh, in the Bosphorus and, and near the Black Sea. And what happened is uh, I had been banging on the doors of the Iranian embassy for several days trying to get a visa to go into Iran that would allow me to continue my journey from Iran eastward through the stands. And unfortunately, the Iranians wanted nothing to do with me. And I thought, okay, well, I could go through Turkey and skip around Iran by going into the country of Georgia. But at that point, it's, 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 it's apropos right now that, that, Russia had invaded Georgia and started that first Georgian war. Mm -hmm. And I, and I looked at myself and I said, uh, crisis changes going on in the U S war in, you know, on the border of, uh, Russia and Georgia, it was time to go home. And that's what I did. I, I found a shipper in outside Istanbul. They did what they call a row row. It wasn't created, actually. It's a roll-on, roll-off. So um, ultimately, it made it a lot easier for me. I didn't have to actually find a crate and create this thing up. Like I had, when I shipped it from South America to Africa, I had to find somebody to build me a crate and do all that. 
So my my motorcycle at this point had uh, zero miles almost when I started. And at this point, it had over uh, 60,000 miles. And I had been on the road three years. And it was finally going home to the port of Baltimore. So did it go in a ship? Yep. Roll on, roll off. Row, row. It went on and a big yeah. boat. And it took a month. Okay. So... Did you fly back to your home in California and kind of start getting stuff straightened out before you went to pick it up? Or actually, what I did is uh, the the chronology of this all. I I think I actually did go back to California for a little bit just to try to figure out what was going on. But then I eventually, my brother, who's a journalist uh, covering politics and the scene in Washington D.C., lives outside in in, in Virginia. So that's about an hour from Baltimore. So I would go back there to uh, Virginia, spend some time with my family. And then uh, Jonathan, my brother, and I, he drove me to the port. And here's the very sad thing. And you can see this photograph um, of my look in my face in, in the last chapter of my book, Forks, is when I got to the port, I had to deal with like, go to this window, go to this window. I had to, I had this thing called a carnet de passage, which is basically like a passport for your motorcycle that makes sure that you've gone in and out of every country. They stamp it when you go in, they stamp it when you go out. They just want to make sure you don't leave your motorcycle in any country where somebody might sell it and make money. And then that country's, uh, doesn't get any duty or tax or, or, or kind of thing. So that's the purpose of the carnet. And some countries require that. So when I was returning to the States, I had to make sure my carnet was in uh, order. And um, so then they finally tell me, yeah, go over there. Your bike is in warehouse number 12. You know, this is a big port in Baltimore. And when stuff comes off ships, it either gets stacked in containers on the, um, on the tarmac, or if it's uh, if it's goods that are uncreated, they go into these warehouses. So cars and motorcycles go into these warehouses. When I walked into the warehouse, Neil, my motorcycle was on a pallet with tie downs, and I was like, "Wait a minute! What happened to Roro? Roll on, roll off." I was p- planning on, you know, putting the key in the bike. Riding out of the port of Baltimore, following my brother back to Virginia. And yet there was my motorcycle. And it was, it was like haphazardly on this pallet that it was like leaning. Like it was almost looked like it was going to fall over. But the tie downs were on. So it was kind of leaning at about a 50 degree angle, if you could be. Now, when I got closer to the bike, I realized that I had these Jesse bags there, the, uh, the aluminum panniers on the back. And these aluminum panniers, the locks had been pried off like with a crowbar. So there were no more locks, no more hinges. I mean, lock hinges. They had the regular hinges. And I opened up and everything inside the panniers that I had packed in there before rolling it on the ship and over there near Istanbul was gone. And then I looked at my my, uh, tank panniers. These are these arrow-stitched tank panniers that drape over your gas tank. And they have uh, zippers on them. And I had I had little locks on them. I had locked them and I had some stuff in there. And the panniers were sliced with a knife and nothing was left in there. And the other, you know, both panniers were, were sliced. And then when I stuck my key into the motorcycle, 
um, which they had the key. They had a key on there, and it and it and it turns out that somebody had left it in like parking mode. You know, you can turn it on so just the lights stay on. Mm-hmm. And the battery was dead. So I came to the port that day, Neil. Must have been a September or October day. And I couldn't ride it out of there. And I had been ripped off. I had I had, had my, my, my motorcycle jacket I brought home with me. Um, and I had brought my helmet home. But and all of my essential items, my computer and my cameras and things like that. So what was on the bike? And, it, and on my website, there's a list of everything and the value of everything. It killed me because here it was after three years, Neil, riding around the world on my BMW F650 GS Dakar with that awesome Rotax Thumper engine. The only thing BMW about it, I think, was the cylinder head because the frame, as you might know, it was an Aprilia. Uh, but that's that motorcycle. And nothing had ever been stolen from me uh. after three years. And there in the port of Baltimore in the U.S. of A. Somebody had gone through your bike. Had ripped me off. Now, when you get stuff stolen like that do you have insurance for that from the shipping company or you can be made whole or do you just take it up to you know where well good question i contacted my um the shipping contact back in turkey and i realized that there was insurance available to me but it was never offered and i didn't know enough about this i had only shipped my bike previously either on an airplane or on a train or on a ferry I'd never actually used a, you know, a container. This thing was rolled onto a ship, a container mm-hmm. ship. So I got a little angry with them and the, um, said, well, why didn't you offer this to me? And I kind of went back and I was trying to make a claim. And the, the shipping company, which is Merck, you see those containers everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. I contacted their corporate office in New Jersey and the guy, the contact there was real snotty and, you know, said, basically, it's your fault. And I said, no, it's not. You know, this happened on your boat. Here's a list of everything. And it just got to be a, a, a war of email and phone calls and voicemails. And I finally just gave up, you know, Neil, I just, you know, I'm not a fighter in that sense. I mean, I'll fight my way around the world in terms of through roads and weather and language difficulties and, and this thing, you know, uh, I'm, I'm resilient in that way. But I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm not. Uh, yeah, they got some guy getting paid to reject your claims, right? Yeah. So you, what did you lose in there? Riding pants, memorabilia, notebooks, I mean, clothes, camping stuff. What type of stuff did you had you left on the bike? I had a uh, the, my rally BMW rally suit. I had uh, a Gore-Tex, the liners that go in the suit. I had my helmet. I, I thought I'd had the helmet, but um, it was a, it was a Kberg at that time, a Justissimo. There was a heated vest. There were some held gloves, a light gloves and heavy gloves. There was a, a cover, um, aerostitch motorcycle cover that I'd used to hide the big. Um, there were um, 
I had a headlamp, you know, that you use when you're camping, you know, one of those mm -hmm. Petzl little headlamps. I had a digital multimeter that I would be able to diagnose electric problems in there. There was um, Eagle Creek cubes. There was a screwdriver set, a ratcheting screwdriver. There was a tire gauge. There was a bakalava, you know, that we use. And there were glove liners. The value I put on here was $2,088 worth of stuff. Mm. Which is a big loss when you're traveling. I mean... I'm coming That's, home. I mean, I haven't had any income in three years. Right. I, I had gone through my savings and, and frankly, I had lost money. I, I, uh, you know, we had the big crisis. I lost uh, my most, the value of my retirement account, you know, in my fidelity account because the stock market had plunged. So welcome home. Yeah. Welcome home. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like the happy ending. So there was no like choirs of angels and people out in the street with bunting and, you know. No, I wanted all the bunting and I wanted the people cheering and playing music and welcoming me home three years around the world alone it, on a motorcycle. It is, it's epic. But it is kind of funny, you know, um, you come home from these trips and, and as you know, I, it doesn't matter if it's sort of three weeks or three months and, nothing's changed. No one knows you've been gone. It's completely irrelevant to 95% of people you're going to run into. And even, even some of your closest friends and family is still irrelevant because there's just no connection. So you, um, you, at that point, what you head back to California, did you, did you get some gear and ride back to California? Yeah, I, um, Bob's BMW, you know, is in, uh, Maryland, right there, not far from the port. In that uh, BMW shop lies between Bob Henning. You know, he's a big sidecar he's fan. A, he's a wonderful um, man. I know him well. Yeah, yeah, and he, um, you know, they they allowed me to purchase some things. Like uh, the other thing that wasn't mentioned on that list, now that I think about it, was a rain suit. Uh, my rain suit was stolen too, so I bought, you know, replaced the pants, and um, you know, he gave me a discount uh, at at Bob's and. He helped, uh, did a little servicing to the bike. I actually probably should have done a little more servicing, but we'll talk about that later. But uh, then I hopped on the bike and my goal was, of course, to, this is the continuing of the journey, right? I have to complete the loop, get back home. Mm. And I would travel across the USA, never taking an interstate, um, just only the back roads. Not like people love to do now. What is it? The TRT or the uh, Transcontinental? Uh, Transamerica Trail. Transmit the tat. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't doing that, but I was basically taking small roads through small towns all the way across lots of stop signs, lots of traffic lights and really seeing the rural side of, uh, of the U S and, and of course, when you get to the border of Arizona and California, um, almost in, unless you're going to travel through the Mojave desert, uh, you can't, you have to get on. So I did have well, to hop how, on the, how did, it, how did it feel sort of being back in rural America on this you know, little unfamiliar because you don't live there, but the familiarity of being home after this incredibly long amount of time in some pretty wild environments. I mean, was it time to think or did it, what did it, I don't know, tell me how you were, what were you thinking at that time? Or how well, how were you I was interpreting America well, it, the the cool thing about traveling through those small towns 
you know, and also the, you know, one of the greatest, most beautiful rides you can do on the East coast is that Blue Ridge Parkway. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, there were a number of, of, of things, you know, we, we, uh, we love as motorcyclist roads that twist and turn. That's why I don't want to take the interstate. So wherever you're the, the Natchez trace parkway down in, uh, Tennessee, Alabama, I mean, uh, Louisiana, another really great ride. I uh, went, went through that anyway, but what I, what was so cool is you got to re- remember I'm on a motorcycle and I have those panniers and I've got the flags from all these countries. So anywhere I might stop, people would stop to greet me and question and ask me, they had this in, um, endearing curiosity about who I was, what I was doing, where I was going. Mm. So it was a it was a nice thing to to meet people who spoke my language again, right? And to be able to share this story if they you know whatever they wanted to ask me, and I would share this story about them, this amazing journey around the world, and how mm-hmm. people everywhere were so kind and willing to give me their beds to sleep in, their kitchens to eat their food, and to uh, encouraged me to keep moving on when I maybe had some doubts. And that's, that was the wonderful part of coming across country. I met a, a very cool gentleman from Tennessee uh, who was on a Honda sport bike. I forget which bike he was on. There's a picture of him in the book too. And and he and I rode together and camped together and then actually ended up in, in Asheville. I guess it was Asheville. Yeah. Uh, where we shared a hotel room and it had been his very first motorcycle ride that was overnight. And he had taken a week. Um, I think he was from, well, he, Nashville is, he was on his first one and you're coming in off this big epic trip. right? Yeah. So it was really cool to see. And he was just so charged. He's like, I can't, you know, he's telling me, I can't believe I've never done this before. He had had the bike for a while, but it would only go out like on a Sunday ride with friends. So this was like, he, he, he packed and you should see the, the motor, the way he packed it. It was like a big tower on the back of his bike. Cause he didn't. Have yeah. Yeah. He took everything. He yeah. probably had more crap for his week than you had for you. <laughs> around the world journey right but a but a sweet man and uh yeah so uh well i would imagine imagine in some respects it it was the perfect kind of re-entry ride to kind of start getting back home and getting your brain out of world traveling mode and more back into america and i i'm assuming you were starting to think about what shall i do next what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do when I grow up? And at any point, where was the catalyst for the book, which we're going to get to when you get home here? Where did the yeah, thinking so, of the book come? I think that came from that curiosity of those people. Inside uh, America, when you came back, when you started to relive the stories for people. Yeah. 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 And I, because you hadn't. Had, I had the idea to do the book and, you know, to, to fast forward a little bit, my original idea, and I'd written a proposal, you know, by the, you know, after I got home, I wrote a proposal and submitted it to agents and publishers. And it was going to be a, a travelogue kind of, you know, memoir book. Typical of what, you know, Jupiter's travels or, 
you know, any of the classic uh, motorcycle tales or even the classic travelogues like Eat, Pray, Love or uh, Neil Peart's Ghost Rider. Um, so you were thinking it was going to be a type of a, a memoir book? System. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I, you know, and for those of you who don't know about about the book, we'll talk about, it, I'm sure, Neil, in a bit. But it's it's a coffee table book. It's got, you know, hundreds of photographs and it's got stories and it also has recipes, a kind of unique thing, because it's about the, you know, the flavors of the food and, and, the, and that. But I I had a deal. It's not a big deal. I wasn't a lot of money, you know, that that a publisher was going to do the book. And and then one night over several bottles of wine and me cooking up a dish from Israel, a dish from Syria and a dish from Brazil for my friends, Bonnie and Doug and uh, my friend Angie. And as we were eating this, I was just so excited because these were some some things that I'd eaten and and discovered the recipes as I came across the, the country that the um, Doug turns to me. He's like, wow, you should really include these recipes in your book because we had been talking about, you know, what am I doing? I'm writing this book. And, you know, I was excited. And and after that, he told me that I thought, wow. And it made me go back to those people on the side of the road who stopped me to ask me about the curious, the curious Americans. And I thought this book really shouldn't be about me. Because a memoir, yeah, it's my story and, and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, more importantly, what they were curious about is where I had been. So how can I, you know, write a memoir and really, you know, and, and I thought, oh, let's just talk about me. I don't want to talk about myself. So I thought, wow, I could share this, this world through photos that I take of people and places and through stories of connecting with people and human and humanity and through the flavors of the unique foods from each of these countries. Mm. So I wrote back to my publisher and I, you know, my background has been in marketing and advertising and design, and I know how to do this kind of stuff. And I, I had mocked up what would be a, like a chapter in this book with the food, with the pictures, mm. with the story. And I sent it to the, uh, the publisher and they wrote back to me and said, that's very nice, Alan. <laughs> kind of ex it's kind of expensive. I'll tell you what. We can probably put, you know, a few pages in the middle of the book with some photos. And, you know, at the end of a chapter, once in a while, if you want, we can we could throw in a recipe if you tie it into the story. And that's when I thought, Neil, I I'm not gonna go down that route and write the publisher's book that they wanted and the one I thought I wanted to write at the beginning. No, I'm going to do it my way. Um, and I'm going to do this book the way I did my ride around the world, alone, without the help of a publisher, without the help of an agent. So now imagine I'm writing this book and editing and looking at all these photographs and finding the recipes and, you know, uh, crowdsourcing people to test these recipes for me. I, I, I wanted to make sure that they were good and that, that they, they could follow the directions. I mean, I never wrote a recipe before. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's, that, that, uh, that allowed me to, to do the book. And, and three years later, you know, I had, with the help of a publicist, I, I nailed, uh, I got on a Memorial day weekend an appearance on good morning America, which wow. is the number one morning show in the country. 
And uh, I tell you, when I look at that, you can see that on my YouTube channel. When I look at that uh, video, I, I could see an, a nervous, a little bit nervous Alan. Because, you know, the, the producer was like, okay, now don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, you know, fast forward now. Now I've been a host on, on several TV shows. I've hosted a documentary film. I, I speak in front of people. Even then, I'd been speaking in front of people. But there was something about being in front of that camera yeah, to be I mean, on a national audience. That's, yeah, that's yeah, a big yeah. deal. But I will tell you, that kickstarted me <laughs> more than the Kickstarter. And the book um, sold out its first printing. I can't sort of go on enough about the, how impressive the book is. I think, you know, we've all picked up a travel book. I mean, we've all read a lot of travel books, but this multifaceted book, you know, it, it's there's so much layers and depth into it. And it's really, I'm kind of excited for you to tell us a bit about how you did it, how you raised the money, how you put that together. So you've basically... Good Morning America just helped you sell that first run out. Um, you and I met when you took the book on the road. Uh, you had the Forks van, you had the bike, and you were basically touring around America on speaking arrangements, um, talking about your travels and talking about the book, and then sort of, again, like you do, connecting. And um, that's how our friendship developed. So what was the motivation for the tour was that just to get on the road or do you needed to push the book or um i i knew that i needed to get the word out mm -hmm. and i also you know with my traveler's soul and my amazing sense of living uh a life of curiosity, if you will. I wanted to get out and travel, be on the road. I had a friend help me with financing a sprinter van, you know, one of those Mercedes-Benz diesel six-cylinder sprinter vans. Good job, you didn't, some of Good job you didn't try and buy it now. Yeah. I... Um, and I had it wrapped with graphics from the book, including a big, you know, big picture of the book. And uh, it's funny. There's the, the there's the picture. You know, people will love the picture of me at, in um, Giza, Egypt, on the grounds of the pyramids. And there I am with a camel and my motorcycle with the pyramids in the background. It's a beautiful shot. And that was on the side of the van. And. I wanted to be able to, the reason I wanted the van is, first of all, it gives you a great billboard. The the, the, the Sprinter vans being more than like a, just a Econoline or a Chevy, you know, uh, van. It's, it gives you that nice kind of uh, surface area. And I could fit a pallet of books in the back and my motorcycle. So I rolled the motorcycle in the back with the, the book. So when I stopped for an event and, you know, I do book signings at bookstores, but there's not many of those anymore, but I would do at, um, at events like uh, festivals or, um, you know, uh, wine tastings, craft beer festivals. Uh, a lot of these things like um, uh, there in Charlotte, there's those, those markets that are, are popular in cities where, they're like high-end food courts where you can go in and there's 15 different little stands that are making cool, creative food and creative baked goods and other things um, like Un Union Market in uh, Washington, D.C. 
um, we have Liberty Station out here in San Diego, these kinds of places. Uh, they like to throw events on, you know, they need to drag people there. It's like a mall. You know, you got four friends together and nobody can agree where they want to eat. So, you know, like we've got them in San Diego. It's called Liberty Station. There's Union Station, Union Market, rather, in Washington, D.C. There's the, I forget the name of the one in Charlotte. There was one in uh, Columbus I did. I did one in Nashville. And they promote events they're food related, you know, because they're they're trying mm. to bring people in and they're not. And it's not just food. There's little boutiques in there that sell, you know, creative different things. And I do those. I do festivals, craft beer festivals, as I said, and wine festivals and, uh, you know, music festivals. And these were just locations. And then uh, the occasional BMW dealer. Uh, but I'd, I'd done a lot of BMW dealers before I even wrote the book. Yeah, But this was a way for me, because you know what? I can't sit still, Neil. I like to travel. So when you, what was the decision you made to come off the road with the book? Was it itchy feet to get traveling again? Because I know that you, you did bring that to a close and you did take off for your next travels, which became a TV show when you were riding in China by 2015. So... How did that, how did you transition out of the book? So when the book came out, when the book came out, it's, you know, people were, you know, it was very unique. I mean, um, that it was this very visual book. It's also about this dude, me, solo, going around the world alone, a three-year journey. I got lots of people contacting me who wanted to either write a book about me, write a screenplay about me make a TV show about me, do a documentary about me. I mean, the, 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 I probably had 20 inquiries. Now, a lot of people have big ideas, but no execution. So, you know, you, you follow every one of these down and, you know, maybe something happens, but uh, so, so that was really cool. And this one production company out of Canada contacted me and said they wanted to do a, a show in China and they wanted to do it uh, in Overland traveler and they found me because of the book and the publicity the book had gotten you know i was in newsweek forbes outside magazine i was on all these websites big front page on the yahoo website um the yahoo travel website rather and onward and upward and and um but i got contacted by this group and fast forward we next thing i know it's summer and i'm in china with my motorcycle um and actually, as it turns out, it wasn't my motorcycle because the production company thought they could get my motorcycle into China. <laughs> but the Chinese government had other plans. But what we were I able remember, to do... I remember that time period. Yeah, I was, I was able to... But it shipped. It sat in a port for months. It sat in, sat in Shanghai for months. It didn't um, shat so in the, Shanghai. It sat. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it sat, didn't shat, and didn't shoot. Um yeah, so I can definitely say my motorcycle was in China. I mean, that's for it sure. It just wasn't with you in China. It wasn't with me. But we found another one, um, which, uh, which I, I affectionately call the my bike. As a you know, we all call our bikes. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. I call it Doc, D O C. But it's kind of because it's Dakar, so it's Doc. It's you know, that's what I call it. And um, so this one wasn't really Doc. I was you know filmed in, 
Um, and I had I couldn't have the Jesse bags, but I, I, I managed to get uh, Pete over there at Moscow to set me up with some Moscow uh, bags. So I had the soft luggage for the for the documentary we filmed in, in there and, and outfitted that motorcycle as best as we could to make it look like the original um, doc. But it was the Wong doc. It was the Chinese doc. So I call it the Wong doc. And uh, we filmed with that motorcycle for over a month. Almost a month, actually, almost a month in China making a documentary. So that documentary ended up, uh, it's, it's actually, there was a, we got involved in some logistics things, so it actually hasn't been released yet. But, uh, but some of the footage has been seen, and it's been used. And that footage, combined with other um, travels I've done, we developed a, with the production company, a, um, a sizzle reel that eventually landed a, you know, a relationship with Scripps Networks, which is owner of the, was the owner of Travel Network, HGTV, DIY, Food Network, Cooking Channel, and these things. And they initially really loved the idea, Neil, of this motorcycle travel, food. And they liked the filming we had done in, in some of that in China and some of it uh, ended up being from Iceland and, and elsewhere. Um, they loved it and they said, well, we, we'd like to maybe explore the idea. So what they did is they first contracted uh, the production company to, to fill what they call a presentation. Basically, give us five to ten minutes of what this TV show might be about mm. and how it. So they gave us a little bit of a, uh, uh, the production company, a little bit of money to go out and shoot. And without a huge budget, we couldn't you know, go to uh, China or to Cuba or to Africa or South America. So we decided to film it in the um, Coachella Desert and um, Anza Borrega uh, State Park in southeastern uh, California, where there's some strange things, including a place called Salvation Mountain that uh, uh, and East Jesus and uh, the Salton Sea. Yeah. And et cetera, et cetera. So we filmed there and they loved what we did there. And they said, this is perfect. Um, so then they commissioned us to do a full length pilot. And um, we shot that in Baja, California. Because the pilot, if once we. If you we, wanted if pilot to. Pilot did, you didn't have the money to go way overseas. Yeah. Yeah. Because because with the with that kind of. um you know, network, cable network um, thing. There's a lot more pieces. You know, we can't be our run and gun guys. There has to be security. There's um, insurance things. There's It's just more complicated because you have to follow the the network's guidelines mm. and because they're paying for it ultimately. And we did that. We filmed down there in Baja and that show aired on the Travel Channel and the Cooking Channel. And the day that it aired was the day that Scripps Network was acquired by Discovery Networks, and so all the all people that contacts were suddenly gone. All of them got moved over to the Food Network uh, or DIY, mm. and and sadly, uh, with nobody championing that show, right, and with all the worry about a merger now because it was it was an acquisition merger. There's all this change and flux going on within Discovery and 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 the Scripps networks, and people are just worried about their jobs. 
and there were already a line of shows that were airing, you know. So anyway, the the sad part of the story, Neil, is that we never went to series. Well, but, you know, I can I can relate because um, New Belly Rise was the last show commissioned by Speed before Fox cannibalized it to make FS1, the Stick and Ball Network. And I'd have yeah. my previous show on Speed. And so, you know, I remember at the time we were going to air, you know, a lot of people at Speed were very kind to help us, you know, with the marketing and what we were doing. But you knew it was tough for them because they were all losing their jobs. It was very hard for them to put any energy behind our show. And of course, you know, it's the triumph of getting a show on a national network being followed by now we got to go pitches to another network because everybody was gone. So yeah, I can kind of relate to you in that, uh, in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So you know exactly how that goes. And for those listening to the podcast, who've never been involved in a television kind of show, it's uh, then there. And what's, what's amazing that I learned in from uh, the production company and my contacts uh, at the network is that, a network like Discovery probably commissions more than a dozen, maybe 20 pilots, let alone these presentations, because they'll do a lot of those too. Rarely does a show go right from the idea stage no. to series. And a series is usually eight or 13 episodes. And they'll, they'll film, as I said, somewhere between 12 and 20 pilots in a year and only about 10% of them ever get to be shown on air. So you can when think about I, the money. Oh, the when, money, I was at, the money. when I was at speed, I always used to say, because this dates me now, you know, all the production guys, everybody's looking for their ice road truckers or their duck dynasty or, or the Kardashians, like everybody's just got, you know, the, the whole eyeball on everything is they all want their ice road truckers so they can just make their name and, and, and retire or make their name and get out the chain. Yeah. That's what a lot of people are looking for. They're sifting through these 20 pilots looking for that golden, golden goose, you know, it's, it's interesting, but so you, you came out of that. What, what, um, what was your next move then? So you, well, you know, uh, here I am, world rider, right? People are go to you, people are like, "Hey, Alan, what? What next? What's next?" And and some people will say, "Geez, Alan, you know, you did thirty five countries in three years, but you know, there's still a lot of the world you didn't do." I'll never yeah. forget. So you go to look at my Amazon. This is so funny because you know, how, how you, we all know we have to make choices. There's decisions we have to make. Where we go what we're going to do. I mean, uh, every day on the road is a decision. I call it, I get decision fatigue when, when you're traveling long-term like that. It's like, where are you going to eat? Where are you going to sleep? Where are you going to park your motorcycle? Those are the most three most important things. And by the way, who's got a cold beer? And um, that's four. Yeah. So that's, oh, I had to add the cold beer thing in there just to, just to punch, punch it up a bit. That's t tied into the eat. It's probably three and a half, you know, there's eat and drink, you know, okay. yeah, give you two and yeah, a half. three again. There. <laughs> anyway, um, so you go to the reviews on Amazon. And by the way, I've got like, you know, five star reviews. It's just, there's like 70 or 80 of them. And um, 
if you're thinking about picking up a copy of Forks, you can see what people say about it. Not only what Neil, who's a fan and a friend. Thank you, Neil. But one guy writes in there. He gives me like one or two stars. And he's and the only comment is, what about what happened to Japan? <laughs> it's just funny. These kinds of things that happen on on, on reviews. You've all. Yeah, really. Right? I mean. Come on, you just spent six years of your life traveling around the world and producing this incredible book, and, you, and you've and you displeased him by missing country, right? Yeah, yeah, Japan. What happened to Japan? Anyway, what after I did the TV show uh, and I filmed the documentary and did the big book tour and been on TV, I decided it was time to see some more of that world and uh, to continue my travels and using the same motorcycle, so here's the interesting thing for you, for those of you, that motorcycle, that same motorcycle that was cockeyed on that pallet and ripped off when I was in Baltimore is still running strong over 100,000 miles or 160,000 clicks on that is sitting in a garage in Athens, Greece right now. And it's been over in Greece since when I shipped that bike to Iceland, I eventually made it over to scandinavia going through the faroe islands and and winding my way back to greece so it's been hanging in greece for five years it sat there during the pandemic so i will return to greece this late summer mm -hmm. get back on that motorcycle and make my way over to italy to another island sicily which i've never been to uh -huh. And from Sicily, I plan to put it on a boat, a ferry boat of sorts. Although what I've told, it looks more maybe like a chicken and uh, a chicken boat. Go. You know, we like the chicken buses in uh, Asia and in uh, and in Latin America. This is like a chicken boat. I'm told that goes to Tunis, Tunis in Tunisia. Better get your French polished up, mate. Yeah, I, I'm not very good at French other than reading wine labels, French wine labels. Um, but yeah, so, so from Tunisia, motor my way overland to Algeria and mm. then into Morocco. So and I can cover some of these northern uh, African countries, you know, maybe bop down to Mauritania, Sierra Leone, sent, uh, the... Um, uh, what is it? The Central African Republic? Uh, no, not Central African. Uh, anyway, I got to get my my uh, my maps out over there. I've got a big map behind me, but or I'm gonna you know do those three countries, plop myself back over to um, uh, Gibraltar and into Spain and head up to the Basque country. Uh, I, I understand some of the best food in the world and certainly Western Europe is in San Sebastian and that region in the Basque country. Um, go to Bilbao and, uh, and then I think make my way back to Greece where I'll park the bike again. Cause Greece has been base camp for me, Neil. I'm now up to like 83, 84 countries on that motorcycle. Wow. That is just incredible. And you're going to be adding some this summer. And the old girl's still running strong? Rotax, man. Rotax. The only right. thing I've ever had to do is replace the fuel uh, filter. Yeah. Uh, the water pump impeller. 
Mm -hmm. Fork seals a bunch of times. I will say that there is a sad story of fork seals. Certainly chain sprockets, tires, and, um, oil filters, and, you know, O-rings for that. Um, but I've never had a major issue with that motorcycle. In well over 100,000 miles in 82 countries. And I've only adjusted the valves twice. Incredible. Do you um do you foresee in your future another book maybe tying all of this together? Um I kind of always feel like as a book owner and knowing you from the book, and I kind of take it for granted following your bits and pieces this last 10 years um with your travels, because you've really almost more had more significant travels since the book than you did with the book in a lot of senses. Yeah, the difference between what the book covers and the travel since is the book was continuous, long-term, years right. at a time. Yeah. Now I go and I spend months at a time, but then come back to regroup. Uh, the, the longest I've been away has been about three months since the three-year journey. But it's a good question, Neil. I've got several books. In fact, I'm working on one. I'm working on three right now, but the one I've just most recently started and that'll be the first uh, or it will be the next book that comes out isn't directly related to the motorcycle trip, but it is related to travel and it is related to our humanity and our, um, you know, what we talk about, about the kindness of strangers and about connecting with people all over the world. And one of the things, somebody came up to me when I was speaking uh, at, at an event, a woman, and she was astounded by the all the different people that I tell stories about in my talks, about how mm. I was able to, you know, how I found these people, how these people found me, and how do you how do you connect with these people so what's seemingly so easy? And I thought about that a lot, Neil, and I was like, uh, it's just me. Mm. Everybody can do that, I I think. And and she said, well, I, I don't, you know, I couldn't see myself doing that. And I, I said, well, I don't know. And I and that that conversation saddened me for a long time, Neil. And it, it saddened me and wondering, okay, is there a way I can deconstruct who Alan Carl is? And why is it that I'm just so outwardly, you know, uh, 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 can meet people and people will draw me into the, you know, I mean, I, I, to me, it just seems it's normal. We all do it. But she was it's right. Not, not everybody. Not yeah. So it's, so what I what I realized is what I kind of said. I, I, I alluded to this earlier in, in, in our talk today is you have to be up, take everything up a notch. You have to be astounding, I say. You know, I really and do astounding things. And really, you also have to honor what's astounding in others. And that's the, probably the most important part. So that endless curiosity that I say I live my life by is because people, I mean, there's a lady with one tooth carrying big buckets of water on the side of the road in Ecuador, dressed in these fuchsia colors with yellow scarves and this nice bowler hat. And, you know, I couldn't resist myself. I had to stop just like those people on the, Blue Ridge Parkway or in the back roads of Alabama would stop me and wonder, who are you, what you're doing? That curiosity mm. is something that, that when you honor somebody, 
that everybody's got a story to tell. Everybody's got something astounding about them, but it's up to all of us to recognize that we do and then take that up and out and, and recognize it within ourselves as much as we need to recognize that in other people. So what I've done is I've figured out and I, you know, how you can kind of do this through, through the, the, the new book is called the astounding mindset. And it comes, what I'm saying is the astounding mindset is uh, create instant rapport and build enduring and more meaningful connections by giving people what they crave and what they crave is that to honor what's astounding in them. And you know, that means you want to be curious, ask questions about people. You I'll give a quick, you can, you know, it's pretty much um, give people the respect they deserve, acknowledge them for their contributions and what they do value them for their essence of who they are. And of course, encourage them by saying keep doing what you're doing and keep at it don't ever give up and that's crave curiosity respect acknowledgement value and encouragement give people what they crave well, and then that to me is fascinating that you've taken everything all the parts of your life fueled by your motorcycle travels and uh, now you're going to turn it into a book for everybody not just motorcyclists yep Yep. So that that I'm working on. It's very exciting. I, I definitely will go back because Forks, as you know, has these great magazine kind of length articles in it. It it doesn't have the sense of a, a memoir or a travelogue like what I was originally going to do. And and I believe there's some really deeper meanings and, and stories. I will come and expand out Forks into that memoir story but make it not so again less about me but about the people that moved me as i mm. traveled around the world and uh because i'm a wine guy and there needs to be a sequel to forks i do have this whim of an idea call it another passion project called corks a journey through the lost vineyards and forgotten farms of eastern europe because all over those travels for the last couple of years i've been doing it I found that it's not just Italy, France and Spain and New Zealand and Australia and Napa Valley where great wine comes from. It's amazing that you can find wine that they've been making for thousands of years in the country of Georgia, in Moldova and in Romania and in Bulgaria and Croatia and Serbia and Slovenia and onward. Amazing. So I do, I don't necessarily want to talk about wine and wine notes and what the flavors are, but about the people behind making those wines and how they have come out of decades behind the iron curtain or behind dictators and communism and have found opportunity in this overworld world through the age centuries old uh, love of wine. Beautiful. Well, Alan, thank you very much today. Um, we loved forks. We'll look forward to corks. Um, looking forward to <laughs> the astounding mindset. We're going to do it. Yeah, looking forward to. I mean, does that mean I'm going to have to start getting up in the morning? Well, you know, pre noon. I think. I think if you get up before noon, you really like you can have that astounding mindset. You're, you'll be astounding if if if, if you if you were, if if you sleep past noon, you'll be astounding in a different way. Perfect. Alan, thank you kindly, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the road soon. 
Hey, it's a friend pleasure. It's been a real pleasure, Neil. I love it. I love the fact that we got to get more deep in by doing two episodes of, of this. So um, thank you and all the listeners out there. I appreciate you. You are all astounding. Thank <laughs> you.